Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher. Welcome to Angel in the Podcast with the woman who will be your friend so long as you're not a bad man, Lydia. No, oh, I'm always so happy to talk to thee. Thank thee for inviting me. <laughs> Very nice. I had a hard time. I couldn't come up. I was trying to, I sat here for probably 20 minutes trying to think of some pun or joke to open this podcast with, and I couldn't come up with anything. Oh, they are very wise. You did a good job. <laughs> well, well, Lydia, thank you for joining me again. It's been a while. We did not record last month just because a lot of stuff going on. on I know, and, I missed on, it. On my side, you know, so uh, <laughs> I, it's so great to finally sit down and do this. Yes, I agree. And what a great topic to do, too. Yeah, I think we're going to have fun with this film. But before we start, I want to first thank everyone for tuning in. And for anyone who hasn't already, let you know that you can listen and subscribe to this show by visiting Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and we are on Spotify as well. And I encourage you to please rate and review us at any of those outlets. And you can also just search for us in the podcast app of your choice, and we will be there. We have a Facebook group that you can join. Just go to Facebook.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. And if you'd like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for Orphaned Entertainment. And there you can watch many of the films we have covered here on the podcast. And you'll get a little heads up of what we're going to be covering next, because I always post the film several weeks, if not a month in this case, ahead of time. <laughs> All these links are on our webpage over at orphanedentertainment.com. All right, before we go take a break here, the, we actually received an email. We actually received this back in uh, late June, but, of course, we haven't had a chance to sit down and talk to each other. So <laughs> I, I didn't want to read it until I had you, in, uh, oh, quote, unquote, okay. in front of me. So so this one comes from uh, Kurt Fukuda, who writes Hi, in. Kurt. And he says, thanks for reviewing The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Yay. You're welcome. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was my pick. I'm proud of it. <laughs> so, hi, Lydia and Christopher. Thanks for doing an episode on the crazy movie The Brain That Wouldn't Die. It's a film that I've revisited throughout my life. Yeah, I'm one of those people for whom one viewing of that film isn't enough. I first encountered images of this movie on a monster trading cards back in the early 1960s. Wow. I was about 10 years old, and the photos of Jan's head in the pan and the thing in the closet creeped me out. I finally saw the film on TV when I was 11 or 12, and remember being completely overwhelmed. I wasn't used to seeing a movie with a protagonist who was so sleazy, and certainly was not ready for the loony ending when the monster tears off Kurt's arm. Oh, spoiler. Oh. <laughs> well, if you haven't watched it by now, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, tears off his arm, then takes a, lot of, takes a bite out of the doctor's neck and carries off the unconscious model. I was too young to realize how silly and awkward the dialogue was or how low budget the entire production was. <laughs> no, I wasn't completely swept away by the total nightmarish strangeness of the film. Of course, as I grew into a jaded teenager and saw repeat showings of the film on TV, I accepted the camp aspects of the dialogue, the poverty of the sets, the insane plot, and the DIY monster makeup. And yes, being a typical boy, I didn't mind the photo session scene or the cat fight. <laughs> <laughs> in my mature years, I can see how some of the elements of the film are at odds with each other. You're right in pointing out that the filmmakers couldn't agree on whether they were making a sexploitation movie or a grim <laughs> horror film. 
I can see the writer and director trying to come up with an ending. How do we wrap this up? Ah, just kill everyone <laughs> off and have the monster end up with the girl. <laughs> oh, that would have been epic. <laughs> well, I guess that is how it ended. That's kind of oh, it spoiler. <laughs> One thing that was that has remained constant in my viewing of the movie is that Jan's voice is so creepy. Her mm-hmm. final cackle is actually chilling. And now I find her voice unnerving. Or even now I find her voice unnerving. A couple items you didn't mention in your, in your review. One, the movie was actually filmed in 1959, but didn't find a distributor until 1962. So some of the transgressive aspects of the film were way ahead of its time. <laughs> Hard to believe the brand that wouldn't die was released on a double bill with the goofy invasion of the star creatures. One of those painful comedies that tries too hard to be funny. Number two, one of the non-speaking photographers in the photo session scene was comedian Sammy Petrillo, the Jerry Lewis look-alike from Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Either Sammy was a friend of the director and agreed to be in the film as a favor, or he was completely desperate for work. Anyway, you two are awesome. I enjoy your podcast and look forward to each episode. Keep up the great work, and thanks again for tackling such a bizarre film as The Brain That Wouldn't Die. All the best, Kurt. That was an awesome letter, Kurt. Thank that you is, very thank much for you. sending that in. <laughs> that is great. I love I loved hearing when people are listening and they're enjoying. Yeah, absolutely. And I, of, of all the films, I think that's just fun. It's so funny that that one definitely has a history with Kurt. Yes. So that just makes it all that much more fun when we cover something that someone has that kind of, you know, Nostalgia. Not, not, nostalgia. I was yes. going to say reverence, but that's not it. It was, it's, well, yeah, sort nostalgia. of reverence. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all have that movie that we, you know, we saw it as a kid and it just freaked us out. And then we mm-hmm. see it as an adult. We're like, yeah, this is kind of cheesy, but it still sticks with you. So yes. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad we could cover that one for Kurt. Yeah. That would be the TV movie Gargoyles for me. Okay. I'm trying to think what mine was. <laughs> I mean, the, we were really, you know, we were, we've talked a little bit about my sheltered past. I mean, the yeah. first and only R-rated movie I saw until I was like 20 was RoboCop. So, <laughs> Ooh, that's a, that's a hard R, though. Wow. That's a pretty hard Yes, it is. But, uh, you know, I think my, my parents didn't realize going into it. But I, I think, you know, the part that scared me the most in any movie when I was a kid must have been the original Phantom of the Opera. My little brother and I were staying up late watching TV. We weren't supposed to flipping channels. And we got just when they take his mask off and scared the crud out of us. You know, this is a silent film. But, mm. you know, in the 1908, I guess it must have been the 80s. <laughs> you know, your little kids and you're flipping through and it's still just as shocking and creepy as anything. So it doesn't have to be a supremely hor- horrific movie to really grip people. Yeah, very cool. Well, again, thank you very much, Kurt. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and listen to a five-minute mystery and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will discuss the film Angel and the Bad Man from 1947. Another five-minute mystery.
Hello, Emily. Carl, it's you. It's reassuring to see that you haven't forgotten me, my dear. Where have you been all these years, Carl? Frankly, Emily, I've been trying to lose the memory of our ten years of marriage. But I must admit I haven't succeeded. Go away. Leave this house. This time, never come back. I have no intentions of returning after this visit, my dear wife. You see, I'm going to kill you. You're mad. I really can't resist the situation. It has all the elements. A woman alone in a house in the country, a summer storm, a perfect motive, and an ingenious alibi. Stay away from me, Carl. Don't touch me. Don't run away, Emily. Come here. <laughs> You must have had quite a ride here in the storm. Yes, Inspector, but I wanted to report my wife's death as quickly as possible. I understand you've been away several years. Uh, my wife and I separated ten years ago. How did you happen to come back? Well, that's rather a strange story, Inspector. It seems that my wife is quite frightened of doctors and refuses to consult them. About five days ago, I received a letter from her that she felt she was dying. Well, my wife has always been a strange sort of woman. I hesitate to say it so bluntly, but I'm certain you're aware of the reputation she had here in the village. No disrespect intended, of course, but she was known as being slightly eccentric. Yes. Uh, by the way, when can you come out to the house to write a report on the suicide? Well, I'm afraid we'll have to wait till the storm subsides a bit, but uh, I realize you want this whole embarrassing affair disposed of as quickly as possible, so... If you'll allow me to have the details, I can begin my report. Good. Well, I arrived at the house about 8 o'clock tonight. I found my wife in her bedroom. She was bleeding from several small wounds. She told me that they were self-inflicted. Well, didn't you stop the bleeding? Yes, but she only laughed and said there was nothing I could do. You see, she revealed to me that she suffered from hemophilia. It would be impossible to stop the flow of blood. There were too many wounds. The storm seems to be letting up. I... I think we'll be able to make it to the house now. I must warn you that anything you say will be used against you in your trial. I'm accusing you of the murder of your wife. What flaw did the inspector find in Carl's story? In just a moment, we'll know, but first... The Flashbulb Podcast. Three to ten minutes of fiction brought to you thrice weekly. From cosmic horrors to fisticuffs, fast cars and smart mouths, we've got a chill for every spine. Find it all at flashpulp.com or search for it on iTunes. <laughs> and now, back to our story. Carl, you murdered your wife, and with one of the most gruesome methods I've ever encountered. Your story stamped itself as a lie when you told me your wife said she suffered from hemophilia. For your information, my friend, women never suffer from the affliction of hemophilia. They may transmit it to male members of their family by means of heredity, but they themselves are never affected by it. The blood on your hands won't wash off easily. Angel and the Badman is a truly orphaned film. 
1975, the rights holder of the film declined or neglected to renew the copyright, as was necessary to do after 28 years under the law at the, at the time. And that allowed the movie to fall in the public domain. And I'm guessing maybe someone was really kicking themselves, because another 10 years, the home video market would kick off. And this is a movie that <laughs> probably would have done really well. <laughs> yes. Many other people uh, profited from this film being put on public domain because lots of people released this film uh, when the home video market, the VHS market, took off. This film ended up on a, a lot of shelves. The film was written and directed by James Edward Grant, and this would be the first of 12 projects that Grant and star John Wayne would collaborate on. The film stars the aforementioned John Wayne, Gail Russell, Harry Carey, and Bruce Cabot. Now, we've talked about John Wayne when we discussed his earlier film, 1933's Sagebrush Trail. So I'll go into a little bit about his co-stars here. Harry Carey, who plays the patient and dedicated Marshall McClintock, was a prolific character actor whose film credits number over 250, dating back to the silent era. Carey first appeared in a film in 1908. He not only acted, but also doing his own stunt work. Carey's rugged frame and craggy features were well-suited to westerns, and when sound films arrived, Carey displayed an assured, gritty, baritone voice that suited his rough-hewn screen personality. He also tried for a career as a playwright, and he wrote a play called Montana, which he also performed in, and he toured it around the country. It was very popular and successful for many years. The success was fleeting, however, as his next play was a complete failure. Fortunately, he was introduced to director D.W. Griffith, and he would go on to appear in many of Griffith's films. Carey's the father of Harry Carey Jr., who was himself a very popular and prolific actor. And talking of, of Harry Carey, well, I, I don't know how I know this, but I, I at some point was, it must have been in film class, imagine that, but I uh, re remember having heard that John Wayne learned almost everything he knew about being a cowboy from Harry Carey Sr. And I kind of did a little bit of digging and it turns out, you know, Harry Carey, as you mentioned, had been playing in Westerns, definitely in Hollywood, but predominantly in Westerns for 20 years before John Wayne showed up. Right. And they weren't direct competitors. At the time, though, somehow, and I wish I knew a little bit more about it, we'll find out together, I'm sure, but uh, John Wayne sort of became an apprentice to Harry Carey. So here's this older actor, not old yet by any means, but older actor that just had been so wildly successful as a Western figure, and he was there to take John Wayne under his wing. So they had a remarkably re close relationship, but more than just being co-workers, he actually learned how to ride a horse, how to, you know, use a lasso, all the kind of stuff that we think of as being iconically Western. He learned all that from Harry Carey. Oh, interesting. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. And then, of course, after Harry Carey passed away, he went on to keep working with his son. So there's mm -hmm. a, a big legacy where, you know, not only did he have that that throwback after the searchers to Harry Carey, but there was a really close relationship. They they knew each other and spent a lot of time outside of film together. That's fantastic. Yeah, so we might not have had the John, John Wayne we know had it not been for Harry Carey. I really yeah. don't think we would, and I think he, I think John Wayne would say the same thing. Uh, John Wayne was cast in other roles. He wasn't just a Western actor. We think about him that way, but sure. he he played several roles as 
nineteenth uh, century shipmen, you know, and then, right. uh, you know, Some kind soldier of, roles. I know he did. Yeah, some more, yeah, World War II things. He started off playing a football player, you know, the athletic mm-hmm. kind of character. But I think Harry Carey had a massive influence on him, and certainly the you know the relationship he had with James Edward Grant, different people that were focused on westerns. Right. Um, I think really guided him in that direction. Interesting things about James Edward Grant, the director, uh, he did a couple of really big other names. Uh, he wrote The Sands of Iwo Jima, which everybody has heard of. of yes, course. absolutely. Yeah, Big Jim McLean, another huge one. McClintock, which is the quintessential Western, of course. And the be- one of the best Western comedies in history, Support Your Local Gunfighter. So... Just, oh, what a, so you've got, it's so funny, The Angel and the Bad Man, I think, is a very well-known Western, but it has these names that we don't realize, I suppose, maybe as as part of having these names attached to it, it's just a hugely iconic film, has hugely iconic names attached to it, and a lot of people that had really close relationships, so knowing that, it's fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely adds a different kind of, uh, just a... Dynamic... Thank you. I was trying to think of a word to use. I can hear you saying, <laughs> Bruce Cabot, who appears here as our hero's favorite Western baddie to pick on, Laredo Stevens, worked at many jobs before finding a place in front of the camera, including a sailor, an insurance salesman, an oil worker, a surveyor, a prize fighter. He sold cars, handled real estate, and worked at a slaughterhouse. Sounds like Harrison Ford. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of does a little bit. A uh, a meeting with David O. Selznick at a Hollywood party is what led to his acting career. He actually tested for the lead role of the Ringo Kid in John Ford's Stagecoach that came out in 1939, but John Wayne was cast in that part. Cabot would go on to appear in many John Wayne films, however, uh, beginning with this topic, with our topic today. So this is another first of a long line of collaborations with some of the people that, uh, that appear. Gail Russell is our lovely female lead, Penelope Worth. Before she got into acting, she had planned to be a commercial artist. So she definitely made quite the jump. Well, I guess all everyone that we've talked about so far has kind of made <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> very chance the chance opportunities brought them into acting. Russell was brought to the attention of Paramount Pictures in 1942, and she signed a long-term contract with the studio when she was only 18 years old. Although she was almost clinically shy and had no experience, Paramount had great expectations for her and employed an acting coach to work with her. At the age of 19, she made her film debut in the 1943 film Henry Aldrich Gets Glamour, and then she was cast in a key role in, in a supernatural horror film, The Uninvited, which... Uh, debuted in 1944, co-starring with Ray Milan. The film was a huge success and jump-started Russell's career, and the studio announced several upcoming starring roles for her. She was lent out to several studios, including Republic for Angel and the Bad Man, but uh, returned to Paramount for many films. By 1950, though, however, it was well known that she'd become a victim of alcoholism, a problem dating back to the set of The Uninvited, that she uh, used alcohol to ease her stage fright and lack of confidence. Paramount Pictures declined to renew her contract. She made the film Air Cadet for Universal in 1951 and then took a break from acting for several years. She was unfortunately involved in several incidents of drunk driving and other alcohol-related issues during that 
during the interim, uh, even spending a night or two in jail. In 1956, Russell returned to work in a co-starring role with Randolph Scott in the Western Seven Men from Now, uh, which was produced by her friend John Wayne, and she would appear in several more films through the late 50s. She tried to quit drinking on several occasions, but sadly it was alcohol that took her life at the young age of 36. Liver damage due to acute and chronic alcoholism. Really unfortunate, because as we'll get into it, I think she definitely had a lot of talent, and she could have been one of those stars that helped define you know, the mid-20th century Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And uh, for her to end her life to end so early at such a young age is just it's very disappointing yeah well and she died so young and we know i think a comparative little about her so i mean you know we think of people like marilyn monroe where her whole life was just so public and then gail russell quit acting for about five years not long before she died and just disappeared basically you know tried to make a comeback it didn't work out well and you know a couple years later she died but we don't have you know, she wasn't in the limelight. She wasn't in the spotlight the way that later stars in the 50s and 60s and 70s would be. So who knows what was going on at the time or, you know, right. how how Hollywood affected her or whether she wanted to pursue it or not. It's just it's kind of one of those tragic mysteries that I don't think we know a whole lot about, you know. And, uh, well, other than the few incidents that I that I, that I hinted yeah. at, that you know, that she well, obviously there was a huge was, yeah alcohol yeah. problem. Yeah, um, but but you know, no, you can't say oh if it'd been this or or not you can't, but you know, it's difficult to say oh if only this had been different or if you know that person had been different. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're not aware. Oh gosh, <laughs> I almost said we don't know Harry Weinstein from then, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Oh my gosh, oh, I apologize, Hollywood. Well, because uh, of the because of the time. <laughs> too. I mean, it was something where if you looked and saw someone having those kind of issues now, there are avenues, there mm-hmm. are exactly. it, it would be more it would be more acceptable to actually stop them and look say, for help and yeah. support them in it instead of just pushing them away, which I think was, you know, the MO of the of the era yes. was you just ignore the problem and maybe it'll go away. She ended up being married very briefly to an up-and-coming actor but you know back then a lot of a lot of marriages were arranged by studios to try and you know push a star in a certain direction Mm -hmm. so it doesn't seem like she had many people in her life no it's very unfortunate very 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 sad end to what could have been a very promising career yeah she certainly certainly is remarkable looking and i think we'll talk a little bit more about her acting skills as we get into it yep absolutely and we should do that right now all right, so Angel and the Bad Man, again, from 1947. It opens with uh, who we find out the later to be Court Evans, firing his six-shooter, and we get a chase on horseback while the credits roll. Court loses his pursuers, but his exhausted horse collapses while crossing the homestead of the Worth family. Mr. Worth and his daughter Penelope see this, and Mr. Worth goes to help and is greeted with a gun in his face. Give me that horse. He couldn't go on. Nor could you. You're injured, man. Let us take you in the house. You gotta go on. Gotta get the telegraph station. We'll take you. Penelope! 
Penelope brings the wagon over along with some overwhelming music. We say that there is an instant <laughs> attraction to Mr. Evans and Penelope. I have to say this is some fancy wagon driving. I mean, she if if wagons could drift, this wagon drifted. <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's kind of funny if you if you look close, you can actually see the reins uh, from the actual driver of the wagon is like oh, hiding underneath. No. Oh, you, can, you just you, destroyed it all for me. <laughs> sorry. Yes. That's all right. <laughs> but that's the, uh, this movie, that, that that's the first kind of moment where you you realize the kind of film you're kind of going to be sitting into <laughs> is when she gets there and she they do the, uh, she sees him and the music swells and her eyes sparkle and they're like, oh boy. He looks up and he <laughs> hesitates before he moves again because, oh, she's so <laughs> breathtaking. And she yeah. is, she's just gorgeous. The three of them ride into town, and Court forces, forces the telegraph operator to send a late-night message. The message is to the land office, and Court has staked a claim. I love how the the telegra- the telegrapher, I have no idea what it's called, the telegraph I just call dude. him the telegraph operator, so I don't know go. what else to say. Yeah. He says, I'm not going to send it, I don't care, no, and it doesn't matter if you write it. Well, who's this from? Kurt Evans. And he just takes it and starts tapping away. Yes, <laughs> yes, at those... the mention of his name, the telegraph <laughs> the operator mention. looks shocked. Apparently, Court Evans is known far and wide. <laughs> the message is sent, and Court passes out in the arms of Penelope. Why, he ain't dead, is he? No, just knocked out. So that's Court Evans. Look at his gun. See how many notches he's got his gun. Not any that I can see. I sure ain't going to touch it and find out. He might wake up and take it the wrong way. Why, when he and Wyatt Earp were deputies over the tombstone, the two of them shot it out of the whole Clanton bunch. So that's Kurt Evans. Hmm. He's quite a man of the gals. They say he's closed the eyes of many a man and opened the eyes of many a woman. Would you call my father, please? passes out dramatically. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a rather passionate kiss that is... uh, that is sort of hidden in this but there's a comment later that we get the definite idea that there's something a little more that happened the worths take court evans to their wagon and despite the operator's warning to stay clear of court evans they take court evans back home could they say court evans more (laughs) in this scene just make sure you know who you're talking about it's not just court (laughs) jones it's court evans The telegraph operator, I think, says his name probably ten times in, like, under a minute. Well, you know, I mean, if, if you meet Ryan Reynolds on the street, you say, I met Ryan Reynolds. You don't just say, yeah, I ran into Ryan. <laughs> At the house, the Worths and the town doctor are trying to calm Court down so the doctor can remove the bullet. Court seems to be reaching for something and won't calm down despite all the sedatives and painkillers. Mr. Worth heads downstairs and pulls Court's gun from the holster that he has hung outside. Mrs. Worth is surprised to see him bring a gun into the house, but he shows her that he has emptied the revolver. He returns to the bedroom and places the gun in Court's hand. Court immediately relaxes. Maybe we'll have to get something and tie him down. Are you crazy? It's empty. So that was it. Gun. It's a pity. It's stupid. These wild ones, I keep picking bullets out of them and setting their bones. Why? 
It's their destiny to wind up on Boot Hill. No. Oh, I forgot. Never speak evil, huh? Downstairs, Penelope asks her mom to tell her the story of how she met her father. Mr. Worth was apparently working on a roof and fell. Penelope's mother nursed him and they fell in love. Mrs. Worth catches herself as she tells the end of the story, realizing the similarity that Penelope may be seen with Quirt. Upstairs, the doctor has done his thing and thinks Quirt will pull through. I love this bit when they're talking about, how did Father, tell me again the story about you and Father. Then at the very end, she says, didn't Father have whiskers back then? And uh, and Mother Worth says, well, yes, yes, as a matter of fact, he did. And she says, I should think that would... What did she say? I should think that would tickle, or I should think that would, oh, scratch. I prefer men clean-shaven. And so that's what makes me think, oh, she got a little smooch back there in the telegraph office. She already knows she likes some (laughs) clean-shaven. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if that was really a smooch, but his face definitely fell into hers. There was definitely a lot of face falling into face. (laughs) Yes, because he was completely passed out. Well, you have never kissed somebody when you're totally passed out? <laughs> you must not, not be not, a college girl. <laughs> not not that I know of, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to get letters on that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, upstairs, the doctor has done his thing and thinks Court will pull through. The doctor begs Mrs. Worth to distance, distance themselves from Court Evans. Mrs. Worth, get that man out of here. But he's badly injured, Doctor. This isn't civilized Pennsylvania. This is a raw frontier. You must take a realistic attitude. This is a place where mayhem, theft, and murder are the commonplace instead of the unusual. Would that justify leaving a wounded man to die? Build your house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. Ye who believe. I don't mind your mocking. You've been a good friend to us. I'm glad I have a logical mind. And a good heart. Good night, Doctor. The family takes turns watching over Court as he dreams and talks in his sleep. During Penelope's shift, he starts rambling about some women. Copper of my bed on the black ace. You're a shapely hussy. You get real confirmation, Margaret. Huh? When you fill out that dress just right. That's your color. All right, Margaret. Chart 1089. 1089. Margaret, you're a nuisance. Let's call it off, Margaret. Yeah, I got places to go and country to put behind. Sure, sure, all right. your head on every coin. I used to smoke corn soap when I was a kid. Your hair is just like that. Light brown, yellow mixed up. Just like corn soap, Lila. Shape, you're a shapely one, aren't you, Margaret? <laughs> <laughs> Who compliments a woman like that? Nobody's ever called me a shapely one. I like dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) We're just not going to leave that one. Yeah, we're, yeah. (laughs) 
Days have passed, and the doctor is back and declares that Quirt is no longer delirious. He's just sleeping. He, get, he again tries to convince Mrs. Worth to get him out of the house. Would you care for a donut, doctor? They're not as light as they should Listen, be. Listen, Mrs. Worth, you can carry this head-in-the-sand attitude just so far in a world of reality. Let me get this man out of your house. I can dump him in the establishment that passes for a hotel in this oft-times dubious community of ours. In that unsanitary hovel? Then he'll be off your hands. But he's much better off here. Of course he is, but who cares what happens to him? We do. I don't know what to say. Once, when I was studying medicine in Europe, I had a friend, an artist. He drew portraits of people and made them resemble the animals they reminded him of. He'd have drawn this man as a coiled cobra. Oh, Doctor, your analogy's terribly imperfect, and your naturalism faulty. Cobras don't coil. Now, oh, but, Doctor, we're so fond of you, and we respect you so greatly. We're sure that you will finally realize that realism, untempered by sentiment and humanity, is really just a mean, hard, cold outlook on life, a frightened outlook. I stand defeated. And furthermore, there are times in this house when I feel as if I were living in a never-never land. But don't hesitate to call on me anytime you need help. You know, they have completely different viewpoints, but she is completely understanding of his viewpoint, and he's just mm-hmm. finally... They they have like a mutual respect, even though they completely disagree. They disagree. Yeah. And I, I love her response to him. She says, you know, your your knowledge of, oh, I've totally lost the word, but she says something to the effect of your fauna. Your knowledge of fauna is much lacking because cobras don't coil. I yes. love, but she says it without, you know, she's not knockative. She just says, oh, you're just, oh, you're so cute, but you're mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> Well, exasperated, the doctor admits defeat and leaves. But they can call him any time. Upstairs, Quirt wakes up. He doesn't remember much, but he knows he's hungry. So Mother sets off to whip up some sausage and eggs. This is another one of those scenes where you know exactly what kind of movie you're watching because he hears somebody rustling around in the room that he's in bed in, and then he pulls his gun and turns, you know, and he sees the girl and she sees him, and he, you know puts the gun away and starts talking and she just she has what we call well we in the south call big old cow eyes yes she does <laughs> she has the biggest cow eyes you have ever seen and she's very good with the expressing with her the cow emotive eyes. oh my oh, goodness, my goodness yeah, she's yes. very emotive you can definitely see where what paramount saw in her <laughs> yes and yeah she really doesn't have to say a word for you to understand exactly what she's thinking mm-hmm Well, after six eggs, a pound of sausage, and a dozen donuts, Quirt learns a little about the Worths. I'll help you with the dish. No. Please stay and watch Quirt Evans. I'm curious to know the effect of six eggs, a pound of sausage, and 12 donuts. I'll call in time for the milking. Do all you people from Pennsylvania talk like that? Like what? The? Oh, well, we're friends. Friends of who? Of all. The Society of Friends. Many people call this Quakers. Oh, it's a religion. It's a belief. That on the wall. Each human being has an integrity that can be hurt only by the act of that same human being 
and not by the act of another human being. Is that Quaker stuff? Mm-hmm. You mean nobody can hurt you but yourself? That's a friend's belief. Well, supposing somebody whacks you over the head with a branding iron. Won't that hurt? Physically, of course. But in reality, it would injure only the person doing the act of force or violence. Only the doer can be hurt by a mean or evil act. Are there very many of you Quakers? Very few. I sort of figured that. Back in town, a group of men stop in to see the telegraph or stop into the telegraph office. The operator has apparently been bragging all over town that he and Court Evans are the best of pals. They want to know where he is, and they are not above pistol-whipping the poor guy to get some information. At the Worths, Penelope finds Quirt in a shirt with a blanket wrapped around his waist because he can't find his pants. Penelope's young brother comes in and lets Quirt know that, uh, that Laredo Stevens was in town looking for him. Now, this worries Quirt, and he insists that he give him his pants. <laughs> when, he, when he asks for his pants, he uses the word thee. Get thee my pants. Penelope <laughs> explains how the Quakers choose when and how they speak. What are you looking at? Thee. Oh boy, it's a good thing I'm not a tattletale. Set him off. They use the familiar in speaking to me. The what? The familiar. The plain language. Get thee my pants, they said. Well, what about it? Well, among us, thee and thou are used only the loved ones. To all others, we use you and, and he and they. Mother to children, husband to wife, and children to... Between lovers, of course. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not. What? I'm not. I wish thee to speak so to me. The common tongue, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. I, I have to admit, I probably learned more about the Quakers in this movie than I knew <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm really ashamed to say I did not do any factual research on Quakers. So if you guys know about no, Quakers, did. let us know. Yeah, please do, because I'll admit I, did, I don't either. Everything I know about Quakers, I've learned from Angel and the Badman. Uh, yeah, I, I took it all as just, you know, I, obviously some of it based in truth, but then the rest of it I thought, oh, maybe that's just movie stuff, but I'd be very interested to know how accurate this movie is in portrayal of him. Mm -hmm. This ends with Quirt taking Penelope in his arms, and he gives her a very deep and passionate kiss, which she gladly returns. <laughs> he offers to take her away. She says she'd go. She'd rather they both stay here, but if he wanted to leave, she'd go. Their plan making for the future is interrupted, however, when he discovers his gun empty and Laredo and his men riding up outside. I love I love the interaction in this scene. As soon as he, you know, she says, oh, I, I'd like you to speak to, or I'd like thee to speak to me thus. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he goes from being like Mr. Suave to wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I, you know, oh, you're shocked. I've shocked you because I'm so forward. And he's like, well... I didn't know religious people talk like that. And she's just, she's just so open and just honest. Mm -hmm. She says, well, it's how I feel. Yeah. And, and she, as she's talking, he starts kind of moving around the room, kind of away from her. And she kind of follows him. And it's real subtle. You know, he's definitely moving around doing things. But, you know, he could be pressing for a couple more smooches. But instead, he's kind of edging away going, oh, wait a minute. What did I get myself into here? This girl's serious. <laughs> Court runs downstairs, but he has no time to get his gun belt from outside. 
He quickly darkens the room and, and gets, sets himself in the center with his empty revolver and then waits for the men. The three men come in, and Quirt bluffs them with his reputation and a visible gun. I did like uh, they come up, and they actually knocks on the door, and the one guy is like, Shouldn't we just, can't we just bust in? Like, busting in with Quirt Evans on the other side is not something I want to do. <laughs> not my idea of a healthy pastime. Yep. <laughs> Quirt apparently jumped Laredo's claim. Being a reasonable man, Laredo offers to buy the land from Quirt. I, I like the, uh, I know... Court Evans isn't the kind of guy that, that wants to work. <laughs> right. He's not like, the kind of guy that wants to go farmland. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and you do? Well, no, I was getting it for someone else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's for my buddy. <laughs> Laredo gives Court $5,000 in gold, but Court wants 20000 Laredo agrees, but he says, I'll, I'll have to owe you because the 5000 is all he's got. They go ahead and sign the deed, and the deal is done, and the men leave. After they have left, Court tells the young kid to saddle his horse. He pours some of the gold into a cup. The Worths insist that no repayment is necessary. They'd help anyone for the good of doing it, not for pay. Court reminds them that they don't believe in force, so they can't force him to take it back. <laughs> and that's actually, I, honestly, I, I'm going to keep saying this again, you know, the uh, interaction between just about everyone in the film is, especially when it deals with the Worths, is just really nice. Yeah, I, it's super heartwarming. I mean, they're, they're like, no, we don't want this money. Like, well, you can't force me to take it back. And you're like, oh, well, you've, you've got you there, you, father. You've outsmarted me. Yep. <laughs> yes. Let's, uh, just a little side note. I'm, this isn't hugely influential of the plot, but the sidekick of Laredo Stevens, they call him Hondo. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they call him Hondo a few times. Turns out later on there's a movie that John Wayne does by the name of Hondo, written by James Edward Grant. They're not related at all, but I just thought that was an interesting little... It's funny they reused the name a few years later for a main oh, character. I, I think you would probably find names like Hondo and McClintock and things like that used over and over in lots of westerns just because they <laughs> sound they, they're cowboy names, you know. Laredo. <laughs> name? I wasn't familiar. Laredo, I get, but Hondo, I thought was kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Court goes to leave, and Penelope goes and asks if she should pack her things. Court's uh, first question: uh, Why? <laughs> Poor Penny. <laughs> is innocent and confused. Her confusion over whether or not there's a mutual love between them gets Court pretty confused, too. Look, Penny, uh, I'm not the kind of a guy that does things suddenly. I, uh, gotta look before I leave. You can ask anybody, they'll tell you that Court Evans is a mighty cautious citizen. Oh, then it's just that they're not sure yet. Yeah. Sorry. Please stay. He's off saddled, Quirt. Unsaddling. You gonna stay? A double eagle. Quit. There's something I'd rather have than this. A favor. A big favor. Well, you got them both. What is it? Would you ride past the schoolhouse with me? There's a lot of boys who don't believe I know Kurt Evans. Sure. Oh, golly. Everybody says you're the fastest man in the territory. 
Well, there's those who'd say I'm pretty slow. Okay, now already a lot has happened, and we have all only reached the 30-minute mark. Just to keep everyone in, in check here yeah. at the timestamp. A lot goes on in this film real quick. Quirt mm-hmm. sets about trying to be helpful around the farm by helping with some of the chores. There's a quick moment from Mrs. Worth while talking with her son that she's a little worried about Quirt's influence. Uh, I do, and that's another, again, sorry to keep saying, I, there's, it's just, you were talking about things that are kind of, kind of subtle. There's, there's things that people do with just their expressions in this film that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't have to say anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you see Mrs. Worth do it when she's talking with Penelope early on, where she's mm-hmm. telling the story about, oh, you're your father. And like, oh, um, but of course, you know, he Not was, I knew he was, a I knew he was a good guy. And, yeah. and this one, you know, <laughs> She's she's telling she's telling her son that they got to get the chores done and oh there's always stuff to be done. It's like well you wanted to be a farmer and she's like well he's like not anymore and she's got the look in her face and she kind of glances towards court so she knows that you know there could be Some influence. influence yes yeah. exactly and they're, that's really good because yeah. they're they're obviously they they want to help the man because that's what they believe they they mm-hmm. they feel it's their duty to help this person regardless of what kind of man he was but they're not blind to the fact that this guy could be a really bad guy mm-hmm. uh, while doing uh, some of the chores and stuff court notices the lack of water in the flumes and ditches Say, wasn't this place irrigated? I see all these flumes and ditches. Frederick Carson turned the water off. Frederick Carson. He's a man who bought the ranch up above from friends who couldn't make a go of it. We had built a community dam, but it was on his property. Well, what'd you do about it? Don't tell me. You prayed. Of course. Get you any water? Well, we didn't pray for water. We prayed for Frederick Carson. Carson turned off the water and you prayed for him? Of course. Can't you see? By committing an evil act, the poor man injured his soul. I love that. We didn't pray for for water. We prayed for Frederick Carson. <laughs> it's like, of course you prayed for Frederick Carson. You know, you're not materialistic. <laughs> you're not trying to get all the water you can so that you can have all the crops you can. You just want to make sure, it. you know, that they call themselves friends to everyone. And mm-hmm. it's like that's their goal is just... To help it, to, for everyone to be happy. Yeah, now, I, for well, everyone to be as good a person as they can be. And I love Court, even when he doesn't say it, you can see it. He's kind of like, you did what? <laughs> you prayed for, uh huh. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, Court jumps on a horse and rides off without giving any real reason other than to walk this pony. <laughs> no surprises for us, the audience. Court pays a call on Mr. Carson. Carson is an old and cantankerous man with a very painful boil on his neck. Who's Carson? Don't get down. We ain't taking on no saddle cramps on this spread. Vamoose. Are you deep? I said get moving, tramp. Nice dam. Yeah, what's that to you? Take out the top two planks. What did you say? The top two. Let 16 inches of water over there. Who says so? I do. And who might you be when you're at home? Court Evans. Well, anybody might ride up here and say they're Court Evans. You ain't known around here by sight. 
Anybody can say they're him. Sure could. But there's a QE stamp on his saddle. Well, take the top planks out of that head gate, you stupid idiot. Uh, this, the guy that they have playing uh, Carson is great. He's this guy, he's got that like squinty eye, which looks like it's probably just really the way he looks. But I love the fact that he's got this squinty eye and everything, but as soon as uh, John Wayne says, Court Evans, that eye opens. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. uh... (laughs) Well, after they go ahead and open the water, Court insists that Carson ride with them, and the two head back to the Worths and arrive shortly after the water has reached the farm. Mrs. Worth notices the boil on his neck and offers to have a look at it to see if she can help. And by the time Carson leaves, he's had that boil tended to, has had some pie, and is laden with bread and donuts. I love that they take a moment to point out Penelope, you know, says, oh, yeah, your gun influenced him. And he says, who says I pointed my gun at him? And she says, I do. And he says, well, I didn't. And she's like, well, then that was easier than I thought it would be. Yeah. And I do like she's like well you know the she effectively says the Lord works in mysterious ways yes. and he's like me he's like that would be something yeah. <laughs> but I I like it too I she knows who he is mm-hmm. you know she even though she's just head over heels doe eyed about him she still expects him to point his gun at people right so it's not as if she doesn't know who he is mm-hmm. uh, and and yet she still gets these, these crazy cow eyes every time she <laughs> looks at him <laughs> and so it's it's a sweet story because of that yeah well carson here is you know like i said laden with food uh and after he has saddles himself with help from court uh, he has to hold his uh hold his ill his got his uh what do you call it his um his loot i think he says <laughs> just his loot yeah <laughs> he has court hold his loot while he gets up on his horse and he's he actually thanks him for making him come down and talk to him he says it, it i feel good and with that, Court realizes that exactly everything Penelope said earlier <laughs> kind of has come to pass. Yep. Well, it is Sunday now, and Penelope is dressed in her finest. She asks that Court take a ride with the family, but it's a surprise as to where. He helps in hitching up the horses, and then and this is where we first meet the local marshal as he uh, quietly rides in from behind the barn. I mean to frighten you, miss. Is there a, is there a fellow named Quirt Evans around here? Both. Yes, I'll get him. Never mind. I can do my talking to you. Uh, has it been here long? About three weeks, I guess. He didn't, uh, he didn't disappear for, say, two days during that time, did he? No. Hello, you weather-beaten old hangman. Penny, this is Wistful McClinic, the Marshal of the Territory. Hi, miss. And don't let that gray hair fool you. He's a curly wolf. Hello, Court. See, I thought I had you about half hung. Tall fella. Fast with a gun, held up the Baker stage, killed a couple. Now, you're right tall, and some say you're a fast man. But I guess I'll have to take the little lady's word for it. Again, another fun little bit of uh, dialogue and acting. It just there's like this. Um, it's like the honor among thieves or sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, a court comes out and he's like, "Oh, don't let it. Don't don't let that fine, you know, face fool you." This is the <laughs> the way he introduces them and everything is just mm-hmm. is really nice. 
Well, I love it. It's it's interesting. I mean, this is it's worth mentioning. This is Harry Carey, uh, but I love that when he first rides up, you don't know it's just some guy on a horse, sure. and the music is really dark and oh, it's ominous. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you at, at first you're thinking, oh, this is another bad guy coming out for him, and then it turns out to be the marshal, which in a way is the bad guy. Well, mm. it is sure. bad for for court anyway. Yeah. Yeah, we get a pretty big info dump on Court's past and crimes that the marshal is trying to connect Court with. Then they, they do a, a job of, like, not coming out and saying that Court did any of this, but the marshal suspects him of some pretty mm-hmm. devious stuff. The marshal was looking forward to Court and Laredo Stevens to finally having it out. He plans on hanging whoever wins the fight. <laughs> marshal says his goodbye and rides off. Penelope begs Court to just stay away from Laredo. Court finally agrees. He kind of likes it this way. Laredo will spend his whole life looking over his shoulder, wondering if Court is coming for him. <laughs> and I like the... Uh, the look she gives him. <laughs> well, if I'm going to be religious, I'm going to have fun. <laughs> I'm going to have some fun if I'm going to be good. I love it. On the road to wherever the family is taking Court... Another rider spots Quirt and recognizes him. He calls out to Quirt, and the, and they stop and are introduced to Randy. I thought it was you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hello. Mr. and Ms. Worth, Ms. Worth, Randy McCall. How do you do? How do you do? Just fine, thank you. Well, well, well. You said that before. We don't want to keep you if you're in a hurry. Oh, I'm in no hurry. I got no place to go. Well, we have. Would you care to come along with us? Well, sure, where? To meeting. To, to meeting? 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 <laughs> yeah, I love it. They both go, meeting? Oh, uh, of course we're going to meeting. <laughs> you wouldn't be interested, Randy. Uh, you better get going. <laughs> <laughs> this is that's such a good example of the humor that's whole, all throughout this. It's so hard to convey when something happens in a movie and it makes you just chuckle out loud. This movie's just peppered with bits of that. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of really great timing. From, mm, from It is from, timing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not to just completely repeat what you literally just said, but you're right. It is. Well, at the meeting, we meet uh, Nelson, a horseshoer that uh, comes by and you know shoes all the horses for the worth. Nelson is obviously infatuated with Penelope, and this isn't lost on Quirt. And he, uh, him noticing isn't lost on Penelope. <laughs> Penelope and Quirt take a walk. Penelope is watching another family's baby, and she asks Court to hold him while she picks some flowers. <laughs> Randy chooses this moment to show back up. I don't believe it. It's a baby. Yeah, I know. Is it old enough to talk? Of course not. Mm. Well, if it can't talk, it can't snitch. Look, I got something I think you'd like to hear. Loretto Stevens is planning a big play. He's going to jump up some guys that are moving a trail herd up from the north. I figured that maybe you and me and a couple of friends could sort of play copycat. Well, you heard me, didn't you? You're going to have my part of it. What am I listening to? Are you passing up a chance to blister Laredo? That's right. What's the matter with you, Quirt? This farm what? Oh, the dame. Sticking your head in this bucket will shut you up. Getting awful touchy lately. You never used to mind what I said. I, I, I love the... It's a baby. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Back at the meeting, Mr. Worth calls Court to come over. Mr. Worth presents Court with his very own Bible, has his name stamped on it and and everything right on the cover. 
Court is visibly moved by this. The other men ask to shake Court's hand, and after a few handshakes, Court quickly leaves the group and pulls Nelson aside. I want to talk to you. This will sound like I'm buttoning into your business, and I am. And you ought to give me a watch with a gold case for doing it. You dim-witted nail-bender, marry that girl. Marry her? Well, I assure you my intention... Well, she knows how I feel. How would she know? Stop yammering about shoeing horses. That's no way to talk to a girl. Talk to her about her. And marry her. And do it quick. Really, another really kind of powerful scene where, I mean, John Wayne, you don't... I don't know. I I don't typically kind of credit John Wayne for... I, I just think of him as being like the, big, the, the, the tough guy, the tough cowboy guy or something like mm-hmm. that. The man could really act. I mean, you see everything that you need to see go across his face in that moment when they're, mm-hmm. when they're shaking his hand and he's like suddenly really uncomfortable because mm-hmm. he doesn't know what in the world he's going to do or what is going on. He's almost an antihero. I mean, yeah. he's just in, in a lot of his characters, I think, but especially in this case, Kurt Evans is not a guy who's looking for people to thank him for anything. He yeah. is expecting mm-hmm. to have to fight for everything he gets. Court calls Randy, who's uh, who's really taken with some of the stories in the Bible, <laughs> and the two Killed three lions. Oh, I got to read more of this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, he wanted you know, like to settle up. We're leaving. It's like, what are you gonna do with the Bible? It'd be bad luck to throw it away. Keep it. Oh, this is a book I'm gonna read. <laughs> How did I miss this book before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with that, the two men ride off. And uh, uh, since this is the hour mark and I'm out of paper <laughs> in this notebook, <laughs> uh, that's actually where I'm going to end my synopsis. Because I think really the bulk of, I mean, the idea of what this story is, is really set up by this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the guy that is p- apparently a really bad guy. I mean, he's got a reputation that precedes him, although we don't see him do any of these things. Uh, we get hints and rumors and you kind of wonder i i think maybe the the filmmakers did a a nice job of like okay we've got to make it seem like he's a really bad guy but we're not going to show him doing any of the Mm -hmm. bad stuff because we have to like him yeah yeah i mean he has to be kind of our hero Mm -hmm. so it's really interesting I, i think if this movie well actually this movie has been remade several times and i wonder if any of the newer versions kind of paint our "Quote unquote hero in a dark in a darker light," mm-hmm. yeah. because I don't think they really could in 1947 and make <laughs> and make him the hero. It would be it would be hard for audiences to identify with him at that time. I think, mm-hmm. um, especially in the middle of you know history being what it was right around that time, and you can't you can't show to a group of people that have just been through a horrible war more horrible things happening and have the person that's committing those acts be likable. I right. think it's too, too soon, you mm-hmm. know, to use the common phrase too soon. So, uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right that they are very careful to keep him from doing anything bad. Right. In on screen, at least up to this point. Right. Uh, you know, aside from now, of course he's, he's high tailing it out of there because he's spending too much time looking at Penelope and, if he can find somebody else to take care of her, well, he's going to tell him to marry her, and he's going to get out of there. So. Right, yeah, because he's he's going to go back to the <laughs> life that he he's more comfortable with. Yes, the life he exactly. knows. Yeah, I have to admit though that you know a 21st century view on this film though, I think the fact that they can't 
make him the anti-hero or as much of the anti-hero as he maybe the character needs to be, I think sort of works against the film. I mean, it's a little obvious. It's like, well, yeah, everyone knows Court Evans. Oh, Court Evans, Court Evans. I'm I'm thinking, so is this guy, they make make it sound like this guy just leaves a a trail of bodies or something. (laughs) I definitely, they do mention a few times, you know, oh, he's, he's been called the fastest in the West. You know, so you know he's known for his quick draw. And so probably well, it's all, killed some people. <laughs> it's all it's all people saying, Well, the people said you're pretty fast. But I'm like mm-hmm. is he or is it is it this just happenstance and a reputation that sort of people just kinda kept glomming on to him <laughs> that he just kinda didn't uh he never disagreed with. Well, you know, the the legend at their time or the the culture at the time was as long as you're not the first one to draw so he could have goaded no, sure. you know tons of people into gunfights gotten them to draw first and if mm-hmm. he was quick enough he could have killed them that way and still been technically innocent well and apparently um, too and uh, there in some of the uh, info dumps and stuff we find out that he was actually the deputy to wyatt earp for yeah, a time there's a there's a lot of yeah, there's a bit of I think confusion about how bad of a guy is he. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if well, he that's... was Wyatt Earp's deputy, but then he took off to go be a farmer, but then he sold the farm, and you know all, all this right. is brought then, up. By then the suddenly he starts you know rustling cattle and stole some from Laredo, and that's what started their feud and. But then, yeah, the way the telegraph operator acts and the way the marshal's coming after him, it's like... Yeah, yeah. well, and it, it definitely mentions... Uh, it, it's kind of one of those things, they mention it so quickly in passing that you will miss it if you, are, if you haven't watched it two or three times, frankly. Um, but they say, you know, the guy that raised Quirt, the guy that gave him his name, I don't think this is... I don't think this is any uh, spoilers here, no. uh, was, was shot... And because somebody held his arm down when he went to draw against mm-hmm. another guy. And Marshall mentions that, oh, so-and-so, yeah, they say somebody held down his arm when he went up against Laredo. You wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Quirt? And that wouldn't be re- any relation to why you, you know, suddenly quit being a lawman and went off and did this other stuff. And and so I think, you know, there's a deeper story in there than you than you get just by one perusal or even two perusals. Sure. You have to be paying pretty close attention to catch these. It's, it's you know, all intricately woven together, but it goes so quick, just mm-hmm. like the humor and the nuances, which is part of what makes this such a good movie. Yeah, it's, it, those, it's those moments where often you you might think that you could zone out a little bit mm-hmm. are actually the parts where you got to pay the closest attention. Yeah, and it doesn't <laughs> lean so heavily on you that it feels heavy-handed. But you can continually – you can watch it a few more times and get something different every time you watch it. Uh, or if you're, uh, you know, like me and you just s- sit there and stare at the people's faces waiting to see how they react to each mm-hmm. other, you know, you might infer more into their emotion than is really maybe even intended by the director. So I think that's – you know, it's directed well, it's written well because you're able to – it reads some emotions in the characters, but then you're also left to think, to expand on their reply, their responses. Mm. You know, it's, it, they don't, they don't flatten the characters to the point where you feel like the only thing that's going on is what you're seeing. Right. Yeah. They do a really good job of actually creating 
uh, characters that you feel like are real. They're not just yes. cookie cutters. They're not just the stereotypical. Everyone's got well. Maybe Laredo Stevens a little bit, but it doesn't matter because Even I mean he's. He, I, there are moments where uh, we haven't gotten to yet that I can't get into too much, but he, uh, you know, he he Laredo specifically has a little bit more wisdom than these guys that are hanging out with him, and mm-hmm. you know he they mention early on when. Uh, when Pert's got the empty gun, you know, his, his sidekick Kondo says, well, that's why you're the biggest man in the territory, Laredo. And, uh, and Pert says, are you the biggest man in the ter- territory, Laredo? And he just says, well, some people say I am, you know, yeah. this is not a guy who's like, yeah, I am. So yeah, come fight me. He's, he's going to be a little cautious. So mm-hmm. I, there, there aren't, I think maybe Hondo's the only flat kid. Hondo is the, the telegraph guy is, but they're kind of, they're there to force points, I think. Right. You know, and the the telegraph guy is there to make sure you know Court Evans is a known name. Mm-hmm. Hondo is there to make sure you know that there are some bad guys out there that would like to get Court. But Laredo's out there to point out that no, Court is actually also an intelligent guy. His mm-hmm. arch nemesis is a pretty smart guy that's not gonna, you know, not gonna just jump out and shoot him in the back per se. Right. I realized I was monologuing so. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> no, I was waiting for you to keep going. <laughs> oh, but I, oh, I can keep going. But they, I think there's a lot of warmth to the characters, especially to the whole Worth family. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, Johnny's Johnny's a little maybe one-dimensional, but Johnny's like 10. You right. know, <laughs> you don't expect him to have deep insights at this point. You know, you're just... You know, when he's, when he, when he says, you know, oh, Court, you know, thanks for the coin, but I'd rather have a favor, a big favor, you know. Right. You're, you're seeing these as people that they're not in it for the gain. They're mm-hmm. in it genuinely to help people and they're passionate about it. And it's hard not to get drawn in by yeah. them. It is really hard not to like pretty much everyone that you're supposed to like in this film. The Worths <laughs> are just fantastic. I mean, they will literally give you the shirt off their backs. Literally, yeah. Um, <laughs> and do. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that Quirt, who, you know, is supposed to be this horrible bad guy with this reputation that, you know, stretches far and wide, but he's generally likable and very respectful of these people. Mm-hmm. He never tries to push his own beliefs or anything on him. He respects him to the point of where, you know, he decides he's going to leave and he goes and gets his gun and starts to load it and he steps in and they kind of glance down at it and he's like, oh, and he takes his gun and, and sets it, it back, back outside. outside. I love that. Yeah, I love that part. It's, it's great little moments like that. And then the whole time he's with them, he's constantly always hanging his gun up outside. He doesn't bring it inside. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, it's just a really great moment. But whenever he does go outside, he does put he's it on. That is on his, again. That's his security blanket yeah. kind of thing. Well, it, it, it is interesting. This is, you know, back to the point about the Worths being such warm, inviting people. You have to have somebody. I think, that, and this is probably the point of the movie. You have to have people that genuine and that open to to draw somebody with this kind of a history in. Mm-hmm. And if they had been any less genuine, then he would not have been so inclined to to open himself up to them and right. to open himself up to their way of doing things rather than pulling a gun on, you know, uh, Frederick Carson and saying, you know, open that up or I'll shoot you. You know, he just, all he says is his name. But you can see from then on in, in little ways, I think, uh, y- 
you can see from then on in little ways that he's being influenced by them, even though he doesn't realize it himself. Oh, absolutely. He even talks to to Carson when they're riding along, and you get the impression. I mean, he he asks Carson, he's like, look, you don't need all that water, do you? And you're like, well, <laughs> no, I don't. And you get the impression he's, he's genuinely interested that if this would actually cost someone else, like, oh, well, you know, maybe you could give him a little or something like that. Yeah, you could give him more than you gave him. Yeah, maybe yeah. later. But, but he's, uh, yeah, he, he he's is definitely coaching saying, him. <laughs> he's not. He doesn't want to take anything from somebody that they actually need. I mean, he's. Well, they wouldn't want to. I think he's he's mm-hmm. aware that they would be. You know, when they were when they first reject the money he's giving them, because he you know takes some coins out and drop, drops them in a jar, and they say, "Oh no, no, we we want to do this for free. You don't need to pay us for having taken care of it, taking care of you." And he he says, "Well, I, I'm I'm not a bad board. You know, I want to be a good boarder. I'm mm-hmm. not the kind of guy that would just wouldn't appreciate it." So I think I just totally went on a t- tangent when I said that. <laughs> did that even apply to what you said a minute ago? Yeah, it did. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I think good. so. No, it just it just adds to the fact that he is very respectful of their beliefs. And mm-hmm. it, you can tell that it, it is having an influence on him, even maybe if he doesn't immediately realize it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the moment when he does realize it is one that makes him the most uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's when he's like... I got to get out of here because I this I'm, I'm feeling These things I've never felt. It, yeah. Yes, they're going to change who I am, and I'm not ready to let go of that. Right, and then of course I, he goes on. I mean, I did in the synopsis maybe earlier than we 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 could have. This is not a short film; it's about an hour, almost an hour, hour and, and fifty. Half, I think I is think it? it's an hour and forty forty plus. So it's almost an hour and fifty minutes. Yeah, it's not a short film, but so much happens in it. Mm. That it it oh absolutely it's, yeah it feels like we're we're rushing along but really we're not <laughs> there's a lot that goes on in this movie and I'll tell you a lot hasn't happened yet that does happen later on yeah but it's the kind of stuff I mean I think you can see where the film is going uh, there's not there are no surprises <laughs> you know as yeah, far as the there, plot I don't goes. think there are any surprises but you know as you mentioned early on. When she first pulls the wagon around and the music swells, you know right away what kind of movie you're watching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you can settle in and enjoy it for that reason. And, uh, you know, it's, ah, it's it's cute. I We haven't talked hardly at all about Gail Russell, which is kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, no, we really did. We we, we said we, we would and we, we didn't. No, she is just fantastic. She's another one. Honestly, everyone in this in the in the cast, I think, is really good at expressing themselves without actually saying anything. Mm-hmm. They are it's a show don't tell movie. Yes, it is. And she does a fantastic job of doing the like you most you know the the doe eye thing mm-hmm. or well, when she's amused or <laughs> uh, and it's it's worth mentioning this is not one of those movies where they have to hollywood haze her to make her look innocent and sweet she yeah. is genuinely reacting it, it there's so little lines in our synopsis synopsis that she says because she doesn't have to say anything her you know, you mentioned early on that she wasn't a, an actress. She had no experience when she was discovered. Well, but her responses are so genuine and so subtle and so timed. It sounds so clinical saying it out loud because 
it feels completely natural when you're watching her. At no point do you think – there are a couple of parts I – and I can get a little nitpicky about it. I'm, I'm one of those people I go back and watch my favorite Christmas romance over and over and over, and I study the actors' faces, and if they react a little too soon, I get really irritated about it. <laughs> and there, I will admit, I found a couple of those in John Wayne while I was watching this where he'd respond a, a word too early because he knew the line was coming. Oh, you don't, yeah. You don't get that with her at all. No, Everything okay. is reactive. And she's, I think, I think she's a fantastic actress. The chemistry between her and Wayne is really good, especially mm. considering the the difference in age between the two actors. I mean, John mm-hmm. Wayne was, I think I did the math where he was definitely in his 40s by the time he's doing this film. Oh, heavens. Yeah, he, was, he would have been just 40. Yeah, and she's, of course, maybe 23. 20. She's yeah. 22, 23, yeah. Yeah, but um, it doesn't that 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 difference doesn't really show. It's just kind of mm-hmm. like, yep, they're a great couple. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they respond very well to each other. But yeah, yeah they they yeah, I think a huge part of that is for her. Um, it's a, a big that's a big compliment toward her. He is an imposing presence on screen. I mean, uh, we know that he's. I mean, comparable to Harrison Ford. There are not a whole lot of actors out there that are such a household name that they're so distinct that if you say the name you immediately think of not only what his face looks like but his stance and his voice and his the lull in his words you know Mm -hmm. he's he's so recognizable and a lot of that is down to the fact that he's such a powerful the powerful presence that to have a woman on screen opposite him that draws your attention away from him says a lot about her presence. Mm. And it's what makes them, I think, click really well together. If she were any less vibrant, any less engaging, it wouldn't work. But her being the age she was and still able to pull that off, it's, I think it just adds to the tragedy of, of her dying. It's just massively mm-hmm. tragic. It makes me incre- – the two people in this movie, it makes me incredibly sad to think about them passing away, both her and Harry Carey, you know, yeah. in, who, who died the next year, by the way, mm-hmm. um, were, I think, just massive – Could have she could have been a massive contributor, and he certainly was. Yeah. Back to the film, though, I think. (laughs) Here, I thought we were wrapping it up. That was my my end statement, my final argument, guys. (laughs) We can end it with that. That's fine. Mm -mm. No, please, continue. No, I was going to say, back to the film, though, and the chemistry between the two, I think if John Wayne weren't a better actor, then, again, like I was saying, I don't immediately give him credit for his actual acting ability. I give mm-hmm. him credit for being that, what you said, that presence. But he's no, like he actually is a really good actor. <laughs> and exactly. he can pull off the humor that's yes. needed in this film. He's uh, a he, really good straight man. Yeah, he really is. When she comes in and finds him, and you see her expression, and she is completely amused, and <laughs> even though you don't know what she's amused about. And then we see him with the blanket wrapped around his waist and the way he delivers is I can't find my pants. You know, it's like, just, what, what's going on? You know, it is like, it, it works so well. Yeah. Um, the po- the part where they're in the barn and she looks at him and she says the, and he says the what? And she just says, just the, mm-hmm. you know, and, and his reaction to her saying it where it kind of gets a little sheepish and yeah. she's just like, Oh man, I, uh, they, it, it is, 
it's so hard to express when you're talking about it in a review, but you are right. Their, their chemistry. Yeah. Another great scene between them is, um, you know, he's wearing his, he put his, uh, gun belt back on. So he's got his revolver <laughs> at his side and she's yep. like, do you really need that to do chores? And he's you like, oh, it, yeah, it helps with balance. <laughs> one, one leg shorter than the other. And she, it, it, it's done with this twinkle in his eye and she mm. looks at him and, Thee are a terrible liar. Yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, they they play off each other extremely well. Mm-hmm. And you in at no point do you feel like, oh, he's he would overwhelm her. You know, his personality would at first actually I think when you are introduced to the characters, you immediately think, Oh, she's in for it. Right. Uh, but then as as it plays out, you come to see more and more that she is not the the delicate snowflake that she no no to and be. in fact I, I think that you know once these crazy kids get together she is going to have him wrapped around oh, her finger yeah he's he's <laughs> he's done yep he's done <laughs> <laughs> a completely enjoyable film it took us a while to get to it just because of, like i said i had so much stuff going on and and just my life that i just like i i can't dedicate myself to sit down and try to watch a almost two hour film for review. (laughs) And when I finally did, I was like, I'm so glad I did because (laughs) this really kind of helped put me in a good place in my head. You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I was just really getting just life was just so busy and so frustrated. And I'm like, I've, and I've got these obligations to the podcast to do. And I'm like, (laughs) maybe, maybe it's time. How how long have I been doing these podcasts? Maybe it's time. (laughs) And then I sit down and watch this movie, and then I sit down and do these notes, and I'm thinking, I can't wait to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's a rewatcher too. This is one I was thinking I could put this on in the background any day and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. look up again at my favorite scenes and just enjoy it. Yeah, and the quality of the of the films that it's out there are really really good. They do Um, seem to be. I didn't notice any glitches. I watched two different versions and. There's, I think, one bit where the the syncing isn't quite perfect, mm. but that may be that could just be streaming. That yeah, exactly. It could be that. It could have been in the original. It's yeah, I tell. believe. Uh, watch this. Um, I think I got it once from uh, either archive or someplace else, and another time I, I think the second time I watched it, I watched it off of Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I, I believe it's free if you're a Prime subscriber. And yeah, the quality on either one that I found are just are are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they really are. So it's amazing to me that this is out of copyright. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's honestly. basically shocking. It's something that was produced by John Wayne. Yeah, yeah, it's I didn't John even mention Wayne that. Production. This was his first production under his, he just started a new production company. This was his first film. Oh, I didn't even realize that. Yeah. And when, what year did you say it went into copyright? Uh, it went out of copyright in 75, I think it said. He was still around, so that is a big surprise. Yeah. Well, whether... Yes, because I suppose he would still be the controlling factor in that, wouldn't he? Since it was his production company. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know a lot about it, but I would expect so. Unless he sold it, but I would expect that would be the case. Yeah, or he produced it, but it was distributed by Republic. So, I mean... Who knows? I mean, copyright law is one of these. It's a, it is a tangled mire of <laughs> it's just, yeah. Who knows? Um, 
this but movie grossed four million dollars in 1947. That's that a ton seems of money. Phenomenal to me. Yeah. yeah, and not surprising at all, but just remarkable. And then for it to go out of copyright—that's mm-hmm. just mind blowing. Yes. Well, again, still like no one saw the home video on the horizon. And it, it may have been a matter of, I'm not going to bother. What's the point? You know, mm-hmm. who, who watches this stuff? Maybe yeah, I get a few bucks. It redistributed. Yeah, yeah exactly. maybe I get a few, like, just a couple of dollars when it shows on late night TV. I mean, mm-hmm. who, who, who wants the trouble? Mm-hmm. But for us anyway, I'm so glad that it did go, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, fall in the, the public domain so we could talk Our about game. it here on the show. Absolutely. <laughs> And with that, I think we should probably, if we keep talking, we're going to start repeating ourselves and just (laughs) step back on everything we've already said. So we should rate the film. I think so. Do you want to go first? No, you should. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Absolutely would give us a four. Four out of five for me. (laughs) What's that? Oh, I said a heavy four. Yeah, very heavy four. Yeah, very solid four. Four out of five for me. Uh, it's just, it's an enjoyable, just fun watch. I mean, I just, I don't think there's anything groundbreaking to get, make it a five, but I, I can't, I could still not recommend it enough, I suppose. Uh, well, this is probably going to shock you. Uh, I'm going to go with a five. Are you? It is wow. incredibly hard for me to think of anything in this movie that detracts from it. The writing, I think, is extremely good. I think the directing is extremely good. It is a 1940s Western. That is the biggest mark against it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the casting is just to perfection. There's not a single person in the movie that was miscast. There isn't, there are no glaring errors. Even the, the characters that I mentioned that are a bit, a bit two dimensional, but intentionally so, their caricatures, they're perfectly cast. There, you know, there's, I can't think of anybody else. I think, well, man, if they'd put somebody a little more like this or a little more like that, it would have been better. Um, the interaction between the characters, the interaction between the, you know, the romantic couple, the family, everything I think is excellent. And I think it's easy for us to say, well, it's not groundbreaking, but this was a movie made in 1947 that holds up remarkably well today. And it's one where if you said, you know, on a scale of one to five, should I see this movie? The only reason you shouldn't see this movie is if you don't like movies. <laughs> That's the only reason I can think of to say, no, nah, you shouldn't watch it. If you like movies, you should watch this one. No, okay. No, no, that's that's fair. I think that what – I think my only mark against it is really no fault of its own, I suppose. But it is the fact that the story builds up. John Wayne's character as being this 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 terrible guy with this reputation, and we never get a sense of whether that reputation is truly earned, or if it's a reputation that he just neglected to try to correct. Uh, people blame him for something, or think he did something, and he just goes, "Yeah, sure, I did that." And I I would like a little bit one way or the other actually explained maybe a little bit well, in the film. I, I can totally understand that. My only response is that maybe he shares an opinion with Joan Jett and that he don't give a damn about his bad reputation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right. Well, when we start bringing Joan Jett into public domain film and crossing those over, that is probably the good time to sign off. But Lydia, thank you very much for sitting down and talking to me with this film. This has been an absolute <laughs> fun one. I mean, this is I think this is another one you chose, really. I mean, when we were just I got hunting. Lucky. I, yeah. yeah, I think I said the brain that wouldn't die and Dangel and the Bad Man. And we said, Yeah, we'll put those on the list. And I think I got lucky. I couldn't have I know I had seen this. As soon as I started watching this, I knew I'd seen it before, but I didn't remember it. So Oh really? I'm happy, I, I, I'm happy to have forgotten. <laughs> I know I never saw this before, so it was Oh, uh, you're you don't have my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it is definitely one that will uh will get watched again at some point yeah. just uh just because like you said it's a great film to just put on in the background and just enjoy for a little bit yeah i'm gonna have to go back I, this has really encouraged me to go back and watch some harry carey uh it, you know a lot of his old stuff is gone right the tragedy of lost film but both he and gail russell i think are our names I am going to explore further. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd like to see Gail and some of her other roles and uh, and see if it, again, you know, because of her demons that she had to fight, whether yeah. that shows on screen. Because at this point, when we're seeing her, we're seeing it at her, some of her earliest work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually, I definitely got to dig up The Uninvited because that's definitely a film that would be right up my alley. Um, mm-hmm. So I definitely need to check that out. And then uh, and then maybe see some other films and see if, you know, those demons kind of find their way in, into her uh, acting. Mm-hmm. Well, then if you're looking for a non-Western option for John Wayne, there is a movie called Reap the Wild Wind, which I highly mm-hmm, recommend. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wake of the Red Witch also, uh, which, um, both both uh, ship movies shippy movies <laughs> in, in a nautical way yes. <laughs> all right well then that is going to do it our our, our recommendations of other films to go seek out <laughs> <laughs> and definitely go seek out angel and the bad man because i you, you just you can't go wrong here so but yeah again lydia thank you very much always a pleasure to talk thank to you, you christopher likewise and that's going to do it folks remind uh reminder you know if you want to be cool like kurt go ahead and drop us a great letter <laughs> And uh, it will read it here on the air, and we'll be very appreciative. Just send that to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com or come and join the Facebook group. Always happy to see new members there. That's going to do it for us this month. We'll be back next month for, with another film. So until then, bye, everybody. Bye. Oh, maybe I should say adios. <laughs> <laughs>